Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly dungeon muser today. Uh, today I, I have another commute I've got to do, so I figured I would uh, hop on and record another episode of the podcast. Um, I have had a really good recommendation come from someone on the... Well, a couple of recommendations actually that came from uh, one of the uh, members of the Dungeon Musings Discord server. And uh, I thought that uh, I would tackle one of those... Uh, the other one's going to need, I think might be more appropriate for a video just because I can um, uh, talk about some of the materials I use in uh, my regular um, uh, sessions uh, and uh, I can easily, you know, provide links and things like that to uh, to places you can uh, secure them or and also hold up, you know, the visual aids I like holding up so often. Um, but uh, another suggestion was about uh, bookkeeping. You know, like how do you keep track of all the uh, the different campaigns? So I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, some of the um, uh, techniques that I use to uh, keep track of the uh, the campaigns. And uh, you know, apart from the fact that I record everyone, so I'm able to go and play them back if I'm forgetting something. Um, some of the things I use to track, and uh, to be honest, it's that's actually something that has evolved over time. So. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How do you, how do you, um, or at least, what are some strategies for tracking your uh, campaign, especially if it's a sandbox campaign and not something that it, where you're going to be having elements introduced? Um, so let's talk about that. So the uh, campaign, um, let me think here. The campaigns that I have uh, been running uh, lately, or the last, I mean, uh, year and a half now. Um, a few of them have been sandbox games, and those are things that require. What I'm going to, I guess, first off, what I'll talk about is I'm I'm not going to talk about running a, you know, like a pre-written adventure, like an adventure path or something like that. Although my comments on Night Below will likely be in reference to a, an existing, uh, you know, uh, adventure where I, I've already made some pretty substantial changes to the first like act of. Uh, night below so you know already we're not really playing the game uh the adventure at least straight out of the book so uh that will speak to some of the uh thanks dude um some of the changes that have been made to the uh to the actual campaign um but um yeah and and i'm not going to include like just you know one shot adventures or, or things like that that have been specifically scripted to be done in one I've already I've already got an episode on the, of that of the podcast talking about that as well. So, what I'm going to assume that that um, the uh, the poster wanted to uh, or suggested as a topic was the tracking for ongoing campaigns that uh, have emergent uh, elements. So, you know, one of the things that it's it's worth maybe talking about how I approach emergent elements. So, um, one of the things I stumbled on when I was a kid is that I, I really didn't like the how easy it was to distinguish between, um, you know, characters and what, like, things that were clearly part of the adventure and things that kind of came up and the DM added on the fly. We, uh, when we played as, as kids, we sort of stumbled on the, the idea that just if something, um, you know, everything it can, you know, has potentially equal value to it and equal weight in, in an adventure... Uh, it's just a question of how that stuff is uh, is added in, you know, um, how it comes into the campaign, whether it comes in through pre-written material or it's something that's added or improvised in the scene. All of it is equal 
there's equal possibility for it to become an important part of the campaign. And it's just something that I've, I've carried forward as a like a DM, you know, uh, technique, I guess, uh, from the, from the time I was a kid. And I, I've mentioned, I think, before where this like randomly in our uh, long go, uh, long-term Iron Kingdoms RPG campaign uh, that was set in a, uh, a duchy called Blackacre. We, uh, we had a, in this one adventure, there was a character who was really just, it was a pre-written adventure that we had, uh, uh, we had played through. I, I, re, I basically reskinned a Warhammer Fantasy roleplay adventure to be appropriate for um, the, what do you call it, uh, for uh, Iron Kingdoms. Uh, you know, change the setting from old world into the Iron Kingdoms and whatnot. And it's, I mean, partly because it's just a really, really good adventure. A lot of those, I mean, like, not all of them necessarily, but a lot of the, um, you know, uh, Warhammer fantasy uh, roleplay adventures are really, really, really good. Like, very different. They're, they're so not... It's such a different approach to uh, to adventure design than D&D. But in any event, the reason it was, it was really... Uh, you know th- that that's worth noting is because because it's so story focused and character focused uh, in, in the adventure in the sense that you're having to actually like engage with the NPCs you're having to role play in order to sort of figure out what's going on and resolve things rather than kind of wander around a specific map or something like that. The uh, what the players ended up doing is there was a character that was written in the campaign to really kind of just be you know it was a fall guy it was a, a dupe or a um, you know person who was framed by some of the other. Um, characters by some of the NPCs in it. He was just he, he, like he, he was ba- background, a secondary character. Not, I mean, not even a secondary, really, like a tertiary character. But the character, the players, really kind of took to this character just because they saw some parallels. This guy was a veteran who was sort of like down on his luck, and, and he'd been fucked over by this uh, religious um, leader uh, twice, like fucked over in the sense of blackmailed. And he was finally just like you know he was so broken and. Um, at first, it, they thought, you know, they, it, it looked as if he had murdered this this one really important character. Not only important in the sense of, like, he had a high standing, but also because players really needed this dude to to sanctify what was going on. And it was going to cause problems. Him getting murdered in this duchy was going to cause problems for their boss. But the, setting all that aside, the players just really took to this character. And then incorporated him into they, they decided to reach out like no no you, you can come with us and you know we're all trying to find a new life here so blah 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 so they brought this character in into their group and then you know the, the campaign was largely focused around this uh, tavern called the Queen's Carriage that they owned and operated and this guy was the um, basically the bar manager uh, for the thing and then, like, he ended up, you know, kind of starting a relationship with one of the waitresses that was there who was unfortunately married to a son of a bitch, which caused problems in and of itself. And it was just, it, it became a really great uh, fuel for more story going forward. You know, like the players uh, in character having a talk with this, you know, NPC about not dipping his wick in, the, you know, the town lunatic's wife. Um, it was just, it, you know very, I don't know, very cool. It's really great role-playing moments. Uh, really, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was one of those things that made the world and the setting feel very real. And part of that is, is was, you know, and, and I guess none of that is stuff that I would have planned. And part of that is because of that, you know, because of the unexpected becoming part of the setting. So the, that's my approach to everything. Is like I, I will, my players have, you know, either have learned from playing with me or they have been told, you know, that, 
just because I don't have the name of something or I'm, I'm making up the name for something or whatnot, it, if it was not on screen before and now it's on screen, as it were, it's part of the campaign and can be as important as anything else. You know, so just because, uh, so if you have that conversation, you know, with, with your players, um, it can, it'll, it certainly frees you as the DM from a lot of the preparation when they, when they know the bits, if you are sticking rigorously to your pre-planned stuff, um, they're going to obviously know when you've gone off script, you know, but if it's not so much that whether you go off script, it's letting the elements that you've introduced carry forward and have consequence on the campaign. So to do that, you do need to do really effective bookkeeping. You need to keep track of, you know, things like, uh, I mean, the names, the names you've given the characters. Um, something I've recently started doing, and I wish I'd done it years ago, uh, is uh, maintain calendars. You know, uh, maintaining calendars in these uh, in these kind of emergent play games where you're using random encounters and the players are going where they want and it's very sandboxy, the passage of time is a very important thing, especially if you're tracking um, movement and knowing that, oh my God, like you guys have been away for a month, you know, um, as opposed to the sort of the nebulous like, okay, how, how long has passed? I don't know, a couple of days. That might say, uh, you know, that you might, might have happen otherwise. And the passage of seasons as well, too. You know, the passage of seasons is a really uh, important part of a, a maintaining credibility in a sandbox setting. Um, so, you know, you the only way you do that is by keeping track of the calendar. So for me, physically what I do is I have a series of um, pads. Like they're like yellow, not, not legal-sized papers, but they're like yellow legal pads. Uh, they're standard, you know, 8.5 by 11 uh, paper. And I just, I have written on top uh, what the, what it is, what the date is, and then I just keep track on the different things, different pieces of paper. So I'll have like magic items that I'm going to find in, in a certain dungeon, say, or I'm going to have character names, or I'm going to have when, you know, I don't know, like what monsters I might need to use. I'm, I'm using everything, um, I'm using that to keep track of absolutely everything, uh, you know, and then what I, what I do is at the end of the day, uh, and I make sure in, in the session, I do not wait for the end of the session. In session, I will uh, write down my, um, you know, the, the characters, uh, you know, the, the name of the new characters we've introduced or the, um, gosh, I mean, the, the, I don't know, the things they've picked up or the, uh, the amount of money or that's been agreed to. I make sure that I, I keep track of that. I make sure that has been recorded so that we do not lose track of it. I mean, I fortunately record my, my sessions as well, so I can always go back and, uh, you know, and then just uh, add the stuff in if I need to. But the, you know, uh, the the real key is making sure you take that moment for, uh, uh, for you to record what it is that the, you know, uh, what it is that the characters have done or picked up or seen or heard or whatever, like whatever thing you need to keep track of to remember, particularly stuff that you've added in as a, um, you know, uh, added in as, as an element into your campaign, that's stuff that you need to make sure that you, um, you keep track of on your, on your sheet. Um, and then what I do is I bundle everything together. I, I sometimes will use accordion folders. I'll sometimes use, um, 
you know, I, I have also in other campaigns keep, kept uh, Word documents. So I'll put together a table that has all the different characters in it, and I'll leave spots for the players if they want to print it off and, and record things or type things in. Um, let them add in uh, the, you know, the information about, um, like, uh, let's see here, like the... Uh, you know, what their feelings are on certain NPCs or what things they've learned over the course of the session. I guess that's the other thing I'll, I'll add in as well, too, is like if, um, if say, I've got, I don't know, uh, the play, if I've got an idea in the middle of a session that someone's going to try something or someone's going to be plotting something, I'll make sure I, I take time to write that stuff down. And then if I don't do it in session, I'll do it right afterwards. Uh, you know, I will make sure while it's fresh in my mind, I sit down and I'll write out, I'll let first, you know, if tradition holds what I first let the dog out, then, you know, I will go in and I'll write down whatever it is I need to write down to make sure I've got that there. I also find oversized stickies are quite good now too for keeping track of that stuff. And I mean, what you end up having to do because you, you end up with just a bunch of different loose papers and shit like that, you have to sort of cull that stuff over time and consolidate sometimes as well. So if you find you've got you know, the same information spread over three or four different sheets. It might be worth sitting down and writing everything on one or typing up everything on one. Um, I did that with my NPCs over the course as our um, Night Below campaign hit the point where, like, the players had been on at least most of the places they were going to be in the first bit of the campaign, and they'd met everyone and interacted with everyone. That's when I put together the NPC list uh, in uh, Word format rather than, uh, you know, just keeping things you know scribbled down on my hands or my hands, on my, uh, my paper, and that seemed to, I mean, that, that I think that helps, that helped a great deal uh, in terms of uh, having a list that players can, can look at. Um, I've also will send emails to players with consolidated information, and they may not read it at the time, but they'll reference it afterwards. One particular instance of that, when I launched my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, I sent the guys a list of the different factions that were going to be playing a role in the campaign, with a little like two, three sentence blurb about each of them, or maybe even one or two sentences. And then, you know, it turns out they didn't actually meet them for quite a while, uh, but they, and they met only one or two at a time, but it gave them an idea of what was in the world and they could always go back and reference that. And they did go back and reference it and try and figure out what, you know, what factions they, they, um, they were dealing with and what they were all about and whatnot. So, uh, not, it, it provides a good way for you to keep track of that stuff, but also for the players to reference, this fictional world that they only inhabit when, you know, either they're thinking or planning about the campaign or when they are actually, you know, at the table. So, um, so let's in that section there, and then I'll see if I, there's any other ideas I have to more substantive things to add than just like take good notes. Cause maybe that's not the best, uh, suggestion. Let's talk about what, what should be in those notes next. All right. Let's talk about what goes in those documents then, or in the uh, things you're tracking. So first off, you know, obviously make sure uh, if it's a name of the character, make sure that, um, you know, you have uh, stuff written in a clear enough uh, manner and in a place that you're going to see uh, that will, you know, will make it easy for you to reference. Um, I guess the this is sort of not just about uh, tracking uh, names and so forth, but, you know, you should really, if you're going to run the, you know, this style of um, game, like a sandbox style game, and you're going to be tracking things like that, like names that are going to be introduced, whether they're in a pre-written names or, or not, 
Um, definitely be okay with having to look shit up. The fact that you can't remember a character's name, um, or that the players can't remember a, a character's name, it is not indicative of how memorable or how important that character is or anything like that. And it's certainly not a failing on your, of your, you as a DM in any way. Um, again, like the players only inhabit this world for the time at the table and then whatever time they think about it away from the table. You know, this is not something where they are uh, obsessively, you know, they're not living in it day to day. And even a really meaningful connection with a character, with an NPC can still be, you know, something that doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily stand out uh, and, and comes quickly to their mind, particularly if they're playing more than one game. You know, if players are playing in a couple of games, it's easy to get um, names and so forth uh, mixed up, which is why, you know, uh, players taking good notes uh, is a part of that, for that kind of campaign. But if the players, I guess this is a bit of, I'm a little all over the place in this, but if the players you find do not take good names or good, uh, uh, you know, character notes, um, it may not be, um, you know, tracking all these characters and so forth may not be something that is for them. You know, I, I was talking with a friend recently about the, you know, people running games that are right for the the players. And this buddy was talking about another friend's game that was being run that was extremely heavy in references to the Forgotten Realms. And the DM, uh, Forgotten Realms were very, very important to him. He really loved them. He knew a ton about them. But the players, it was not. The Forgotten Realms was interchangeable with one of any number of, of uh, fantasy settings. And also, you know, for various reasons, there's not really one that was particularly of interest to these player to this player at least and as a result of that the player didn't really know much about stuff or didn't have the the you know the the name uh dropping just did not have the cachet um that um i think the dm it, it did to the dm so with, with that in mind you know what what i said it's like well you know that's that's sort of i think maybe it's just partly not reading the players properly you know like just because something is important in the forgotten realm source books or for important in the in the book and the novels it doesn't mean that it's important for that campaign what's primarily i mean like there, there is a certain amount of like value or, or kind of like oh wow you know to having a cameo appearance from a a main character you know a kirk appearing in a star trek game or drizzt Orden appearing in a, a forgotten realms game but it shouldn't be all that stuff, you know, it should, or at the very least, you need to show in the game, in the campaign, why it's important for that campaign. It's not big enough, it's not more, uh, you know, it's not good enough for it just to be like, oh, this is, so here's a, a you know, a, a stunt casting, uh, I think is what they, they call it in the, uh, in the Hollywood biz, uh, my buddy George will correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, but that's who it is. When you just have someone in there for the sake of having them in there, it's not really, you know, in, in a show where you're like, ooh, I recognize that name and I know that name. And that's supposed to be the thing that carries the the placement as opposed to, like, doing the work of making that character they're playing important in the series. Um, anyway, that's, I got kind of lost there. But uh, for yourself, assuming that the players are going to be on board for that kind of, th- you know, uh, detail-rich thing, um, you know. If you, one of the things that careful note-taking on your part uh, does is 
uh, is it allows you to really like you know improvise stuff without fear of screwing up the long-term campaign you know um, what I, I allow myself to do that a lot uh, you know and then but what I do is I make sure I write it down um, I've got, I, to be honest I, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've got pretty good memory uh, anyway so I'll often remember a lot of what's been introduced or what I'm thinking about um, but um, if you're not you know and and for me for when you know as I get older my memory is going to be uh, less and less reliable, I still make sure I take care, very careful notes for when I'm adding something in. Like if I improvise an element about a specific magic item, which again, I, I often do, uh, I make sure I take careful notes about that. Um, and I guess the thing that's, that's you know, uh, it, this is a bit, I'm, I'm turning this topic into uh, a bit about um, the virtues of, of improvising, but, you know, if your player's know that you're doing it, it does not, uh, you know, or, so I was saying it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, a, a bad thing, you know, um, some players, uh, none, none I've played with, because, you know, I mean, I just, they, it's, there's a little bit of natural, um, you know, natural, not selection, but, uh, um, uh, oh gosh, was it self-ordering, I think is what it's called, where, players who, who would not like the kind of random elements that I, I introduced to campaigns is, is won't play my games um, or I won't run games for people who won't like that stuff but um, what I think you can do is if your players know that like look ooh, we're gonna like here's an example for my campaign let me use a, a, a specific example there is a, a source book for 5th edition uh, D&D um, that is called the comprehensive I think, I think it's called the comprehensive equipment guide or something like that, and what it's uh, something that's from the uh, what do you call it? Drive through RPG. Uh, what is it? The DM's Guild, and it's something that I had purchased when I was grabbing a bunch of shit for a Five E game that I, I never ran, uh, and it has in it a massive list, uh, random table, uh, where you can add uh, what do you call it? A random elements, you can add, uh, not random elements, you can add, um, uh, that's what I'm looking for here, uh, random traits to magic items, and these are not massive things, they're not like, it casts fireball, or it goes on fire, it's some small, piddly, not piddly, like, not, not that it's inconsequential, it's, it's these neat, you know, thematic kind of little things it adds to the, to the uh, magic item, that gives it a little bit of flair, and my players know that I will randomly do that for because uh, because the magic items in um, first edition uh, or first and second edition AD and D are very I mean uh, there there can be ones that have you know special like specific big ass special abilities like flaming or you know acid or the you know holy defender swords or whatever uh, they know or armor of etherealness they know that they're otherwise what you just get is just something that's got a, a bonus to it a plus and maybe sometimes a plus versus specific things. You know, and we've had our the first one of those introduced in our campaign, and fuck is it cool? It's super cool seeing it in there because what a big difference a you know a, a higher bonus makes uh, with a magic item. But um, what the um, what this thing allows me to do is just we roll randomly, and then we we see what the you know what comes out, and that becomes the um, the uh, the new like little feature on it. And it might be, I'm trying to think of what the ones that have come up thus far, and. I, I'm drawing a complete blank right now, but 
none of them are game breaking. None of them are particularly, you know, um, none of them are going to be unbalancing. Although in an old school game, I'm not super concerned about balance or not balancing. Just like in any role playing game, I can always find stuff to challenge the players. It's just, you know, um, yeah. Uh, in more modern games here, you get worried about that. Uh, so the players know that that's the case. And it becomes this fun bit of discovery for all of us as we see what they've randomly generated. And because we know that, A, you know, we're going to be doing this, so it's not, it doesn't seem like I'm just not prepared or, you know, not, um, I've uh, just randomly added some shit in um, when it wasn't intended to be random from the beginning. Uh, And that it's expected that once it's introduced, it is part of the canon. Then we're all on board with that, you know, it becomes this fun thing uh, rather than it's, you know, like, oh, why didn't Madison prepare for the session and re-roll, pre-roll some of the shit. And like magic items, I will often pre-roll. So I'll have loot and, and stuff like that, that people will, can find. Um, but I also still like using that little bit of, you know, a little bit of uh, randomness to have an element of unpredictability added to my campaign. Not only the capabilities of the players, uh, and their and their items, but also because uh, I, it's fun trying to reconcile. Okay, now hmm, I had in my mind a loose kind of like idea of what the backstory was for this item, and now it's got this this other, you know, ability or something in it. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder how that came about, and then I get to come up with a, a reason for for why that's uh, you know why that specific item has that specific ability, and it's really quite fascinating quite fun you know um so that's um you know that's the the way that uh i do that and then to make sure you succeed at that stuff what you need to do is make sure you are keeping track of your um you know of of what random things you're you're introducing here you know you need to make sure that you have the uh the list of the things that you've added, the list of, you know, the, um, well, at the very least, I mean, yeah, when you're adding those things in, if you are concerned about balance, like I, I've had in my uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, what you doing, dude, uh, they have now reached a point where they've, they've got some pretty badass, uh, not only abilities and spells, but also some pretty badass magic items. So I do need to make sure for myself, I keep track of that stuff. So when I am designing things, um, it's I don't design encounters in that the same way you would in like PF2 or Pathfinder where, or third edition D&D where you're trying to create a quote unquote balanced encounter. But I also wanna know that like, if they have at their disposal some stuff that can wipe out, you know, say two or three, or at least take out of the fight two or three either adversaries or groups of adversaries, well, then maybe I need to make sure if I want the, there to be a real fight here, I have enough to be able to suck up those those abilities, you know? Um, you it, It's cool when, a, a, you know, player characters get to feel like real badasses and a what was supposed, what appeared at first glance to be a really challenging encounter turned out to be basically nothing. That's pretty, you know, badass for the heroes. But... Um, when that happens too many times, it's just like, well, shit, like you need to make your encounters more difficult because this is just a walk in the park for the characters. They're too, they're, uh, it's not that the characters are too powerful, it's that you're not planning the encounters appropriate to what their power level is. And taking good notes of what they have on them and what they can do is a good way of dealing, uh, you know, keeping track of that stuff. Um, 
the more complicated the game becomes, obviously, the more challenging that becomes. And if you have absences as well, too, you know, like if you run a game like some of my uh, sandbox games where the, um, the players uh, may vary from session to session, you know, if you've planned something in mind, like let's say that, okay, well, this encounter, you know what, I'm not super concerned about them working their way through uh, this group of adversaries because, you know, they've got uh, two clerics in there that can both turn undead, so a good chunk of these things are going to be gone anyway, probably. And then those neither of the clerics show up for the session, well, then suddenly that encounter is a lot more difficult than the last one, than what you expected. But, and I'm, again, I'm kind of going off track here and talking more about these kind of emergent play games than I am about the note-taking, but I'll finish this thought on that before get, trying to get back on topic by saying... Um, with that, what you need to do is uh, just let it play out. Players will, they will figure it out. You know, um, even really challenging encounters, if it looks like this not going their way, let it ride out. Uh, in, in those kind of games, if you've, if you've uh, bought in on a style of campaign play that's going to be emergent and it's going to be random, um, and things just don't, do not go the way of the players for f- faults, uh, for things that are not their fault whatsoever... Um, do not feel the need to, to switch it or to whatever else. The players will figure it out and then they will feel so good for having done so. Um, so let's just let's talk about what other stuff you need to keep track of. So anyway, with all that in mind, what, what do you need to keep track of? You need to keep track of uh, the capabilities of the players. You need to keep track of the things that are introduced. Um, resources you can use as well too. Like they're... The Xanthar's Guide for uh, Guide to Everything uh, that that well, it's a source book came out for Fifth Edition D and D has some terrific name lists in it. I, I use I have that sitting next to me for every session, whatever kind of game I'm running because it's got great modern day names for different ethnicities, um, it's or different cultures. It's got great elf, dwarf, whatever classic names, so you can easily pick that up and uh, and use it. I don't use it for anything else because I don't run Fifth Edition, uh, but I find it very helpful for that. And, you know, another uh, small little thing, too, is, you know, uh, and forgive me if this is just blindingly obvious, but when you're taking your notes, like, use underlining, use, you know, uh, circles, use lines across the page to divide your page up, like, make use of that visual space. This sounds so flaky, but make use of that space to make it easy for your eye to track where shit is. So if you're going to do, like, you know, um, a column. What I did uh, uh, for one time for a campaign is I sat down and just did, you know, a column with names, a column with, like, words that that were associated with that NPC and then where that NPC would be located. And then I just used that as a, a goal. I filled that sucker up and then used that as a way of, like, adding stuff in. And then as I added them in, I would highlight the names so I knew that they had been introduced already. And then probably what I could do as well is, is reproduce them onto bigger pages. But... You know, um, and little things too that, that'll help you remember these characters as well. So, like, if you decide to do a silly voice or you decide to do a pattern in the character after, uh, say, an actor or something like that, you know, um, put the name down next to there. You know, if you're going to base a character off of, uh, say, Sam Elliott, you know, write down Sam Elliott on there. If you're going to base him off of, uh, geez, what's his name? Um, um, oh, gosh, 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 I can't remember his name now. We played. Uh, Oh, Norman Osborn in the original uh, things, the original Spider-Man films, and he was in uh, 
Uh, John Wick, uh, the first one as well, too. I can't for the life of me remember the actor's name, but I've used his with, or at least had him in mind when I've done voices and like uh, role played NPCs before. Um, Al Swearingen from um, Deadwood, you know. Uh, <laughs> this is just another aside here, too, but a really easy way to cheat with all those things, with all those NPCs. Just use a cast. You know, you don't have to put them in the same place, but if you, you know, steal a cast of characters from a show that you're familiar with, that you like, and just mix them up, you know? Um, grab Al Swearingen from Deadwood and um, Seth Bullock from Deadwood and make them, you know, buddies. Uh, add in, um, you know, uh, a character from um, Game of Thrones. Um, and then if you want to have some comic relief, you know, have a character from Friends. You know, it, it, whatever works for you to, to remember what those characters are like, uh, put that stuff down. I mean, you may have more comprehensive stuff, I guess the other thing to bear in mind is what this careful note-taking allows you to do is to discover those strange connections you did not anticipate. Where there's going to be something that's going to have happened in the campaign and introduced with the character or something like that. Like, um, you know, one of the things that people uh, sometimes say is, you know, there's the modern style perspective where you the the extreme and straw man of that is like you come in with this massive backstory and pages of of uh character developments and then then oh it's just you know none of that it's all the action that's happened before that you hits the table and the converse of that is oh go in with nothing and start playing like that's what osr is about my preferred style of play is a little bit closer it's definitely closer to the osr style than the pre-written but i like having some of those elements because we can discover more about that in the course of play if you're live to that and you know you want to explore it careful note taking can allow you to add that stuff in the whole, all the stuff that's been happening if you're following our night below campaign with uh, some of the characters in particular with the um the uh character who's playing a stone elf or earth elf that is very much stuff that's just coming up. It's It's been developing. I, I've had backstory and I've known what his connection is. And as the player's been responding to it, I've been adding stuff in, you know, uh, to uh, as we go along and carefully keeping track of what I've added so I can remember that, you know, what the uh, the elements of the world are. And then what you'll end up finding is as you go along too, you'll just hit a point where you'll, as a DM, you'll probably write out a whole bunch of shit because you won't be able to help having all that stuff come together and be like, oh shit, this is probably where this is going to go. And, and then it will prompt your creativity and you'll, you'll have that, you know, some extra prep in there. But if you, uh, and what that's reliant on is careful note-taking, you know, you can use things like, you know, you can use a keyboard, you can use a whatever else I find for myself, it's faster to not jot shit down on paper, which is why I keep track of that. Uh, and, but that's particular to also to the style of play I have, right? We, we play mostly online, almost exclusively online. We, um, you know, we, um, uh, I, I have another laptop, but I use that for keeping track of chat and stuff like that in the stream, making sure it's, mo it's, uh, still up. So yeah. Um, I guess like the, the, what I'm saying is that you fi find the way that you want to keep track of, of, um, you taking your notes, allow for yourself time to do that. You know, uh, like I always, if I, if I'm doing something, cause I, I hate dead air, I'll tell the players, Oh, just give me a second. I'm just writing this down. And, um, yeah. Um, and that's that. I think that's, that's the episode on, on note taking as well as an unasked for heaping of praise for oracular style emergent play. 
Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about, um, and forgive me if there's a bit of an echo in here. I've removed all the uh, things from my office right now, so I have uh, <laughs> a lot more free or wall space in here uh, than I did before. I thought I'd give a quick update on the uh, state of play as well, too, because we had a couple of really, really good sessions with uh, AD&D in the last uh, couple of days. Um, what At the time of recording, we just had hit uh, session 33 with our Night Below campaign. We hit uh, session uh, 32 in our Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, and we hit session 7 in our uh, Night Below, no, in our uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard game. And uh, two of those are, I mean, obviously the Ash campaign is, uh, Reavers of Tula is not run with uh, uh, AD&D, but I mean, it's a very similar style of, of uh, old school play, but the uh, the last session of our Night Below campaign was a boss fight. Uh, it featured um, a, a basically, I mean, the characters fighting this enormously powerful thing that I was describing as a, a soul gorger or a uh, um, like a uh, what is it, a spirit eater or spirit uh, uh, consumer. This thing that dated back from the time when the uh, elves fractured in the um, the drow and the um, rest of the of the elves uh split uh, over the fight between Corallon, Lorethian and uh Loth. That campaign is set in uh Greyhawk, but the backstory for the demi-human path- pantheons are pretty much the same in in uh Greyhawk as they are in uh Forgotten Realms. The difference uh, between the, the the human uh deities and the other, I guess, I mean, they're not necessarily human, but the um non racially specific gods uh, are uh, are a little different uh, or substantially different between uh, Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk. But um, in any event, the so the a campaign ended up being a mix or that particular session ended up being a mix of kind of a culmination of everything. So the players found out a bunch of information that they did not know about what was going on in the kind of, I guess, like some of the stuff they had suspicions for it picked up with them on the third level of uh, what we've been calling Heathertop Warren, this massive complex. They thought it was uh, a goblin stronghold, and as they got inside, they found it was this mysterious uh, stone elves that seemed similar to the tribe, the sort of uh, secretive and, and um, isolationist tribe that uh, uh, one of the characters comes from. Um, this seems to be their his ancestors or his tribe's ancestors. And the more that they you know, had been investigating, the more they were seeing kind of an implied backstory of what they were what had gone on like they uh they realized this may have dated from before the time of when one uh god had become a god and was actually either a champion or a demigod of of another and they finally actually learned what uh you know what the what the actual backstory was of the of the area and they've learned some pretty key information about what happened to the, you know, how the one isolationist tribe came to, to be. I'm not going to spoil anything here in, in case you want to watch the episode because it, it was a, a great deal of fun and the players played the hell out of that uh, session. But um, there was a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was funny for, for an old school game. It was a, a moment of pretty key, like the players figuring out how to, how to approach this problem. And what they got for it was uh, some pretty rich rewards as well, too. And on rewatching, it was cool at the time, but rewatching it, it was really awesome seeing the players' reactions to finally getting like a, a shit ton of, uh, relatively speaking, of magic items. And, um, you know, one, one uh, player actually <laughs> said, my character's fucking awesome. 
uh, afterwards. And that's exactly, you know, it's not like we're, we're showering the players with riches or the player characters with riches in that game. We're 33 sessions in, and this was, I think, the first real big um, like dump of, uh, of loot on, on the players. So it was pretty awesome. And now that they know what their abilities, what their items are and stuff like that, it's just, it's, it was very, very cool seeing them getting themselves, you know, feeling confident, finally going in to the final fight. And we, I use some, um, uh, hand wavy, uh, story elements to sort of like allow them to enter that fight fully uh, rested and with all their abilities and whatnot. And um, <clears throat> it was, the fight was super deadly. I mean, like really, I think as uh, uh, I had not, you know, put in in that one, the only sort of, I what I was going to say is that I, I did not, or I was not going to put in any, um, you know, uh, anything that, uh, uh, that that was like a, a overt kind of gamifying the, uh, uh, the fight. You know, I didn't want to, like I've talked before on the podcast, uh, 4th edition, uh, Pathfinder 2, do great, and even the 3rd and uh, third edition, 3.5 Pathfinder, to a degree, uh, and Starfighter to a degree, they will do a really good job of creating um, boss fights. You know, they'll have a different mechanic for bosses versus regular things, and um, in some of those, it's because of overt differences between the different types of adversaries, like in 4th edition, and in some cases, it's just, be, uh, uh, it's a clever... Uh, trick of the math like in Pathfinder 2nd edition however I didn't want to because we've been playing this game so much like that I really didn't want to do that I just wanted to see how this would play out and it played out brilliantly like it just um, man like the players it was a there was uh, two players who went down uh, over the course of it one of them nearly died and uh, if it was not for any gosh like even with the Astonishing Fortune it was she suffered a crippling, horrifically crippling injury uh, from that thing. But because the players pushed through and, and they actually achieved their goal, which was to defeat this thing, which then led to the freeing. Well, I mean, actually, I won't. I, won't, uh, I mean, it's, I guess it's a spoiler that they they were successful. But I won't say what happened afterwards again, in case you want to watch the episode. But it was, um, yeah, it was really. You know, I, I talked. I spoke earlier in the session about uh, just letting, or in this episode, although maybe it was last episode, I don't remember uh, at this point, but about just letting the campaign or letting the 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 fights just play out. Players will figure out ways. You know, you just set it up, and, and they will figure out ways. And in simulationist uh, style games like uh, AD and D, their the roles are there already to sort of to to facilitate that. You know, um, in more gamist games, the it gets more abstract, and you get a little further away from the from supporting that kind of play or from allowing that kind of play. So, it's um, yeah, I mean, it, it's um, it's really interesting to uh, uh, to have seen how that fight went. Um, I can't believe how fast the the some of the oh, no, it's not true. It just it worked out really well. Like the the timing, the the pacing of it uh, worked out really well. Uh, the, the way they they did uh, damage the character the way they worked together to do that like everyone felt like they were having an important thing to do in that fight i felt you know uh, whether it was the illusionist um you know buffing uh characters and uh with like illusion spells or whatever whether it was the ranged character who was tagging people and then you know uh, casting fairy fire on the target uh whether it was the fighters right up front you know a lot, uh, sucking up those big hits from this thing um and then um yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a, 
uh, it, it worked out exactly kind of the way I would I would have hoped that would have gone. And the players, I think, felt uh, this is the first, uh, like the ending of the first big, you know, there's going to be a postscript as well too, where they've got some uh, other parts of the dungeon still to explore. And I think there's a little bit more loot that they know that they want to recover. But the it's the first, it's the ending of the first big arc of uh, of this one of having defeated the adversaries that had the top worn. And man, what what a what a a great um, yeah, what a great uh, you know arc of this overall campaign. It just um, everything sort of panned out the way that I was hoping, which in in terms of the players, you know, it it being a credible and reactive world, like it it took the players about three or four tries to finally push through and then, you know, make it all the way through to the end of it. They had to, uh, their their first time, they didn't even get to, you know, they saw the the complex and that was it. Uh, And then had to retreat. And then they went a second time and they had to retreat. And they went a third time. I think then they had to go back and train and then they went a fourth time. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm convinced three, let's see, three or four times. But the final time is when they, they used an unorthodox approach to it. And yeah, it was just, it worked out. No, they, it was four times. I think it was four times they tried to go in there. And it just, you know, it, it felt like a proper campaign in the sense of like a, a, a battle, like an ongoing um, series of battles that is, is gearing towards you know, in the war game uh, style, of it's a, a, a an armed conflict against an adversary that took time to, to play out. Um, the uh, environmental storytelling uh, that took place in the game as well, too, or took place in the thing, I th- worked out really, really well. I'm not. I'm going to try and continue on with uh, some of that stuff as well, too. But the players really responded to it. They really picked up on on you know clues that were left along the way as to what was going on and what had happened. And I think that is, um, I credit a, a really good uh, talk on uh, GDC, uh, the Game Developers Conference, uh, years ago that I saw about environmental storytelling that was really, really great. I mean, just it uh, gave me some good ideas for how to communicate story um, when the there isn't a strict narrative that's going on. So that's going to be pretty cool. I've got some ideas for... Um, how to incorporate that, those sort of techniques uh, in uh, wherever the players need to go. Um, but the next stage of that night, of the Night Below campaign is going to be once they've you know finished up all their efforts in uh, Heathertop Warren, the next step will be to, uh, I guess, go back at training and do this sort of like, you know, the, the downtime, which will push us, I think, probably closer to the fall in the, in the campaign calendar, which is going to be actually... I think certainly in the fall because of some of the multi-class characters, but that's going to be great. You know, when, when all they all go through their training, they you know get to learn new spells, they get to identify what other whatever other magical items they have not yet identified and plan. You know, and strategize for what they're going to do as their next step. That stuff's all fantastic, and that's a, a part of the campaign that I enjoy uh, the most is seeing them plan. You know, because it's a reactive world, because it's a um, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just it's it was a really, really, really satisfying uh, dungeon. I, I need to make sure that I the lessons I learned from here, which is I guess here's what another thing I, I learned from that particular uh, from that particular arc. There is, uh, you know, do not be afraid. I guess you get in in uh, modern games, you get kind of attached to small or get used to small, um, you know, encounters. 
uh, small combat encounters. And because, uh, I, mean, I mean, that's because of balance and whatever, you know, like the, the math behind those games uh, requires you to do that. You can't make unbalanced ca- encounters will kill characters. Uh, and what I like about this particular style of play, uh, and this is supported by the most recent episode of our uh, our Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign, which was just a three-hour running fight with this massive horde of zombies that were spread all across this dwarven temple complex. And um, that that is that you don't need to get attached to any one or two things. You can throw so much more stuff at the players uh, and make for a really exciting uh, uh, type of experience, something you can't really get in a modern in a lot of these modern games, modern fantasy games, I mean, uh, without having to indulge in um, specific, you know, game mechanics like like minions or swarms or things like that, like uh, or hordes, I guess, or troops, is what they call them in um, uh, Pathfinder One, uh, and it's just, yeah, I mean, it, you know, um, it it the games feel incredibly exciting, and when the players know that it's not a balanced encounter and that they need to be creative, like. The running fight with the zombies, it was it went from like really, really scary at one point to they felt like they had things under control. This is in our last session of the Crystal Shard. Uh, they thought they had things under control, and then there was a I added in an X factor uh, that, uh, or I, I mean, I had that in mind anyway, but the uh, at a certain point we added in an X factor, so they thought like this is the scenario, we've got total control over it, and then suddenly something new that came in that uh, did not... That, that did not uh, play by the same rules. You know, zomb- the zombies were shambling along at about 10 feet per round. So there was they were easy to hit, but they took half damage from uh, piercing and bludgeoning weapons. Uh, so they were having a hard time dropping them down or it was taking up a lot of their resources. One player actually had to go out and start snatching go- uh, arrows up from the fallen bodies to try and, you know, make sure he had enough to keep going. Uh, and the, uh, the guy who was using a sling ran out of bullets. He ran out of things. He would used them all. And those are the kind of things that I think, you know, this is why uh, I feel justified getting into the bookkeeping thing. Uh, Why tracking ammunition? Why tracking, um, you know, uh, bullets and and, uh, encumbrance? That stuff can have a really significant effect on the immersive feel of the game. You're not rolling a random dice to see whether you're out of ammo and be like, oh, fuck, I'm out of ammo already. You know, the players know that. And then them being able to make that decision of like, shit, I need to spend some rounds going and trying to retrieve stuff, you know. Um, keeping track of where you've dropped items and stuff like that, you know, is is just um, all that stuff is, is so fun and, you know, uh, and makes for a really, I feel like a more immersive game and a more, and when you're when you want to create that tension, one of the players said, uh, you know, that uh, you can tell it's a good session. This is about the night below game. That you can tell it's a good session when your heart's racing, and the other player says, "My heart's always racing in these games." <laughs> and it's it just makes you think that you know the like obviously that's not only that's not unique to old school games, but the I don't know like the 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 threat of uh, lethality the the, the sort of straw man version of old school games is, is like, you know, you're dropping bodies left, right, and center. And that, I mean, that can be true uh, of, uh, of a game. Um, and it's part of, part of the reason why we play with uh, the Astonishing Fortune uh, narrative um, metacurrency is because uh, we like having a way of sort of blunting that to a degree, but that is not a thing that saves you, you know? 
we actually had our first shield break uh, today too. I, I, one of the things I have in my house rules is that you can use a shield to absorb a blow. It, it becomes broken then. And then if it is a, um, what is it? If it's a magic item, then it gets to make an item save against that. And uh, potentially it's not destroyed, but uh, it, it really, like that particular, that that option really saved one of the uh, tanks today. He would have He would have suffered a massive hit. And uh, it was cool. I mean, like it, it changed the, you know, it wasn't like he, um, he was able to keep on going without a change in his circumstances. He suddenly had less AC um, and then had to use his, uh, his weapon in a different way. And that, I don't know, like that persisting feel of like, well, that thing's gone. Um, it again, added to the sort of the immersion in the, uh, in the game. So, um, and then our Ash game, our Ash game was actually a lot of chatty stuff this, this session. So it wasn't so much that we were having particulars, but the lead up to the next session, we, there's some, I'm not sure what the players are going to choose to focus on and how they're going to respond to this development, but the enemy army has now arrayed itself outside their keep and, and wants to fight. So I don't know if the players are going to be uh, willing or, or um, keen to, to dive into it or not. But I mean, the, every time we've had these massive fights in, uh, in Ash, we haven't used any abstraction. We've used, you know, every uh, unit is a, or every individual uh, character, uh, whether NPC or PC, is a individual token. And we move them around and, and whatnot. So you have these massive fights uh, and it's going to be pretty exciting. And the system really allows you to move along at a good clip and the morale mechanic allows you to, you know, to uh, track, uh, to I guess like, you know, quote unquote, believably track whether people are going to withdraw or you know, continue fighting on. And that was maybe the, one of the scary things about today's uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard session was that they there was no chance of them ever breaking. You know, there was no morale that was going to be made by these undead dwarves. Um, and relative to the players' uh, hit points, they did hit. I mean, they didn't hit very often, but when they did, they could potentially do a lot of damage. So, yeah. And uh, and the armor, you know, the uh, setting aside the armor class changes because we play with... Uh, Damage reduction, um, medium armor gives a damage reduction of one and heavier armor gives a damage reduction of two in uh, the games that we, the old school games we run. And that little bit, you know, you could see players responding in this past session about how grateful they were to have had that, you know, a little bit of DR. And uh, when I was younger, I would have, you know, the, I remember there being optional damage reduction rules in uh, the Dawn of the Emperor box set for... Um, the Mistara or known world uh, setting for basic D&D or the Beckme D&D. At the time, I was like, well, this is kind of silly. Like, it's just, you know, you're it's such a small and trivial amount. Who gives a shit how much it reduces it? And boy, was I ever wrong. Like that, those, uh, I really wish I had given those uh, game, those rules a uh, more of a, a, a try or more of a shake back in the day. It may have uh, resulted in a very different uh, feeling uh, towards, although, I mean, whatever. I mean, I came around back to AD&D and I'm, I'm enjoying the hell out of running it. Um, and I guess that's that's really the reason I wanted to, to record this particular addendum is because it, the game, that game is just, it is so much fun to run. It's very much a customizable game. Like, you know, we've, we've made the game what we want out of it. Um, but it just, it plays so simply at the table. It allows for such really fun uh, creative improvisation at the, you know, in fights. They don't last forever, too. You, you get get in, get out. Uh, even our boss fight only lasted, I don't know, um, 
maybe an hour, not maybe not even that long. Um, the massive, I mean, the, obviously the fight with the zombies took forever, but that was the point of that. Like that, that episode was about fighting. It's that Romero-esque fighting that horde of things. And it does such a good job. And I asked the, uh, a good job of supporting that, like of creating that atmosphere without having to, to rely on any other kind of mechanics. I asked the players afterwards if they thought that that was like, how did, how did that feel? Did it feel like the, you know, uh, that it was dangerous the whole time, even when you guys were at distance and they said, yes. So um, ha- having, and that I think comes down to it, uh, the simulationist sort of approach that uh, uh, AD&D takes where you're not abstracting. All, you're, there's obviously some level of abstraction with like you know, armor class and to hit rolls and shit like that and all the other elements of the game that that are abstracting the, you know, quote-unquote reality of the fiction. But the way that, um, or the minimal amount that ADD does that, the, the fact that it does not try and abstract story elements like big groups or like fear or things like that, uh, unless there's a specific um, mechanic, you know, I, I really, really enjoy that. And I, and I feel like it, that again, and the tracking all those nitty gritty little things like your ammunition, like your, you know, your encumbrance, all of those things really, they lead to even more, um, I don't know, uh, like easy immersion which in the fiction, which leads to really terrific, you know, character-focused um, role-playing. It's much easier if they're feeling like it's a, a credible and uh, and believable, I guess, world, or at least an immersion, you know, an immersive world. It's easier for them to play in the in their characters. So you see a lot more um, casual, you know, role-playing of their characters. And by, by casual, I mean not like the soliloquizing, you know, this connects to this thing about me and blah, 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 you know. Um, we had a couple of little lovely moments like that in uh, um, in today's session as well, too, where it was just little casual things that we were able to toss in, like the fact that the dwarven priest of Clangadin, uh Silverbeard was, uh, they were because they were clearing out the temple, some of the, the people, or at least one of the ones, was an acolyte he had served with before. The, the risen dead was that, and as he was fighting it, you know, he he didn't know it first when he, he, he got a surprise attack on it, smashed this thing in the face, didn't take it down. But then this ruined face of this former classmate of his turns and like, ah, comes towards him and he didn't get a hit on him. Well, at first he did, but then we for, I, I had forgotten that he had uh, made, was wearing more powerful armor or heavier armor. So the attack missed and the way I described it is kind of going down and the fingernail breaking as it goes down and coming off at the top of the finger and ah, you know, leaving behind this uh, this kind of gory reminder that the the uh, chainmail had saved the character's life, and just seeing the players' reaction to that, and and hearing them talk about how they how that made them feel, you know, like it 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 led to this wonderful outro kind of soliloquy, and it's the second time I've had a player take charge of the the outro, you know, the outro, this kind of last scene, and I fucking love it. You know, I'll love doing that stuff uh, myself anyway, but I mean, if a player wants to give me a cool, evocative description of what's happening at the end, that's amazing. You know, that that is, I think, a a testament to the the real, the, I want to say magic, it sounds so flaky, but like the real magic that comes from that kind of collaborative, immersive thing. The player, the player was so, you know, invested in what was happening in the fiction, they couldn't help but share what was going on and what they had pictured in their mind. And that is amazing. 
You know, that's how I feel every time I DM. Like I love, one of the reasons I love running games is getting my head into those games and getting my head into that world and, and you know, following along the players as they're, uh, or the player characters as they're going through these adventures. You know, that's that's the approach I use for my, uh, when I'm running things is I just try to get myself in there and think about and describe this stuff that I would naturally see or feel or or whatever. Um, and I keep my head in that every time I, I game, whether I'm a player or a or DM, uh, DM more, more so, because you do need to communicate that to the players. But it's so cool seeing two weeks back to back where the players were the ones who, uh, you know, who got in and, and couldn't help but share that, uh, their, you know, their vision of uh, what was happening in that world. And that's awesome. So great, you know, and with such a relatively light rule set, um, it's just, it, moves along at such a good clip. I really love to, you know, another little thing too is the weapon speed. I noticed as well, seeing the players' um, reactions to when they realize that they've got magic items that reduced weapon speed on things. Um, because we, in our, we use the uh, optional rules out of the uh, AD&D 2nd Edition DMG uh, where we do roll group initiative, but we apply individual weapon speeds or casting time or whatever to the uh, individual actions. And... I've seen at least two times now where that has had an effect on what players choose to do. You know, uh, for one, I mean, one player to keep his attacks a little faster rather than using a battle axe, uh, you know, paired weapons, using a battle axe and a hand axe, uh, he uses two hand axes. Even though it does less damage, it allows him to attack faster because he can attack on a on an earlier round. Um, and similarly, the magic items, you know, the, the, the magic items each in uh, ADD second, the bonus, uh, magical bonus you've got on your thing, it also reduces the weapon speed uh, of your routes of weapon too. So you're able to attack faster with it. And the player who was wielding this crazy, it was a long sword that had uh, plus three versus uh, canine related uh, monsters. And it, yeah, because it's plus three, the weapon speed of a long sword is five, but the bonus means it drops down to a two, which is the same as a dagger. And when he realized that his longsword would attack as fast as a dagger, like he he was very pleased. He was very, very pleased with that. So it's another little bit of that nitty-gritty. Because you enforce that, because you make use of that, those rules, um, it it leads to more interesting opportunities to reward uh, and also more um interesting uh I don't know, and and like immersive kind of um yeah, immersive play. It's fantastic. So Anyway, and I mean, I, I think that the reason I, I keep going on this is because when there is a higher level of, like, the more game that you have on there, I think the harder it is to to get the players to be thinking so, solely about what's happening on, in the story. You know, this may be my whatever criticism I have of uh, 5e about, like, lack of customization and in comparison to games like PF2 or, or the other, um, uh, or PF1, uh, and the, you know, um, the relative... I don't know. I mean, the, there's, I guess, the lethality of, of that game or the lack of it is not really something that uh, um, I am doesn't relate to the immersion. Uh, but um, what does? Because the you know the walking wounded element of these old school games, the fact that you only heal one hit point, that you're limited in your healing spells, that you're limited in your um, uh, what do you call it in your use of healing potions, it makes for such cooler. Um, it's such a cooler way of deciding, you know, what the players uh, or it's, it's such a cool way of supporting difficult decisions 
about whether to go forward, whether to go back, whether to rest, whether to retreat. So when those players do go forward, you know, down on hit points, um, down a bunch of spells or things like that, it's really fucking cool. Like it's a really, it's clearly a difficult, um, you know, decision for the players. And it's scary, you know, until they, uh, you know, not knowing whether they're going to face a balanced encounter or not or whatever. Um, it's it's genuinely, you know, terrifying uh, for the for the players. And I get that the what D&D 5th is trying to do is to give a different type of experience where it's, you know, you're getting to use cool powers and whatever, you know, I love 4th edition D&D. So I get that, I get the appeal of that. But I think that what that does is it takes away from the immersive, you know, experience that you have when your characters, you know, it, it makes sense that your characters are not going to just have a nap and a sandwich and then be completely back to normal, right? Like their hit points are back and whatever else. It, it makes sense that if they had a really tough go, they may be feeling the effects of that for a while. Whereas if they had a relatively easy fight, then it may, they may easily, you know, uh, recover from that. Uh, and mechanically what that means is you only lost a couple of hit points versus you lost a shit ton of hit points. So, so yeah, so I guess that's what I wanted to do. Just qu- record a quick uh, state of, the, of play just to say how much fun I'm having with this system and how much the promise of a lot of those types of, um, you know, uh, types of gameplay really has paid off. Like uh, now that we're coming up on our fifth month, no, sixth month of, uh, of playing, um, night below of AD&D twice a week. Um, I am so glad we made this switch. And I found the email I sent as well, too. I should maybe talk about that on a, on a later episode. But I found the email, the pitch email I sent to the guys about kicking off this campaign. And man, oh man, oh man, like what a an enormous amount of fun. I can't wait to see where this one goes. Can't wait to see where Legacy of the Crystal Shard goes as well, too. And of course, my Ash game. Fuck. Love, I love that campaign. I have so much fun playing with those players. Uh, I can't wait to see what what they choose to do next, you know, so many good things I had for that campaign, to be honest, for all of them. So anyway, um, so that is the state of play with respect to AD&D and Ash. Um, let's get to the outro. Okay, so that's it for this uh, episode. Let's um, get out with the outro. As is always uh, the uh, case, if you have any comments, questions, uh, or concerns regarding this episode, please do not hesitate to shoot me a voice message on Anchor. Uh, you can shoot me an email. Uh, my email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings, and you can find on the description of any of the videos from our, any of the recent videos from our Dungeon Musings uh, YouTube channel or from the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. You can find a link to the Dungeon Musings Discord server. And you can find all of us uh, on there where we've got channels dedicated to many of the topics that I talk about in this, and many of the games I talk about on this, and as well, all of the different games that we run on the YouTube channel. So you are welcome to join us there uh, and uh, join in in the chat. Oh, so that is it. Until then, uh, I as of uh, today, this will be my last recording before I move. Uh, so I think... Um, I've got some ideas for episodes uh, coming up as well, too, including uh, talking about lessons. Someone asked a really good question uh, on the uh, YouTube channel about what lessons I've learned uh, from uh, from running this, and I think I'd like to give that some thought. Um, I will also like to talk about uh, having gone through the move. Like one of the things that I had to do as I'll pack up my library, you know, my gaming library. And uh, it is, uh, it has reached an unreasonable uh, amount of boxes uh, for, you know, for the move. 
But it's um, it was good to go through, and uh, it reminded me a lot uh, of a lot of different games that I had not thought about in quite some time. So I would like to think about that as well too, and maybe you know think about um, the lessons learned from older games uh, that I no longer run, or at least have not run in quite some time. So so that's that. Um, until I talk to you again, uh, I hope that uh, at the time of recording, we're right in the middle of the uh, COVID crisis, uh, COVID nineteen crisis. So I hope this finds you uh, healthy, safe, and uh, weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected. Um, and until I see you again, happy gaming.